The older you get, the faster Christmases come around. You know, when you're a kid, it seems like the forever in getting here. And as you get older, it's just the years slip by like pages in a book in the wind. And we might well ask the question, since we've done this so many times, those of us that have been around a while, is why? Why do we make such a big deal about Christmas? Is it just a tradition thing? And I think that song that the choir just sang captures why we make such a big deal about it. We actually stand between two great comings of the Lord Jesus Christ. God promised in the garden that the offspring of the woman would crush the serpent's head, and it was some 4,000 years of waiting before Christ Jesus came. We've been waiting for him to return because he promised to do so now for almost 2,000 years. Not even half the time that the Old Testament saints waited. And so we look to the first coming of Jesus and we look to that time of waiting as insight into how to wait for Christ the way we ought to wait to keep our anticipation, our eagerness to see him strong and confident as we live in a world that is dominated still by darkness. We still look for the light of the world. And so this morning, we want to turn to that era, roughly 700 years before Jesus Christ was born. Isaiah the prophet wrote of his coming, and he does so multiple times in his prophecy. You recall that Yahweh called Isaiah into ministry in the year that King Uzziah died. He had been a good and successful king in many ways, but his success went to his head, and he intruded on the priest's office and was struck with leprosy. He was a leper till the day he died. Isaiah's vision of Yahweh in the temple proclaimed him to be God most holy, thrice holy, the whole earth filled with his glory. Isaiah served in the southern kingdom under bad kings and good. Assyria was the world superpower threatening the land. We go to museums and we see the monuments and uh, artifacts, the um, sculptures and whatnot that Assyria produced, and it's easy for us to forget how barbaric they were, as many ancient kingdoms were when they conquered lands. In Isaiah's lifetime, the northern kingdom fell, and but for the Lord's intervention, the southern kingdom would have been conquered as well. Isaiah predicted that it would be Babylon that would take the southern kingdom. And so the southern kingdom fell a little over 100 years later. With his world swirling with bad news, Isaiah speaks often of the good news. The gospel of the coming Messiah, Prince of Peace, was at the center of that good news of hope. And Isaiah predicts his coming throughout his prophecy, the virgin birth in Isaiah 7.14, his divine identity and everlasting kingdom, though born a child in Isaiah 9 his reach to the Gentile nations, Isaiah 11. No wonder Isaiah is often called the evangelist of the Old Testament. Especially stunning is Isaiah's portrayal of the Messiah as a premier servant of Yahweh 
in what are called the servant songs. The first is our text this morning in Isaiah 42. The last is the famous Isaiah 53 passage, starting at the end of Isaiah 52 and revealing his sacrificial death for the sins of his people. Both the first and the last servant song begin with the same words, Behold my servant. And that's our objective this morning, to see Jesus through the lens of Isaiah's prophecy of the coming servant of the Lord. If you turn in your Bibles or follow with me on the screen as I read these first 12 verses of Isaiah 42. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard on the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you, that is, the servant in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and now new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise in the coastlands. So you look at this passage, we see first off ministry success in the servant's work. The second part of verse 1 down through verse 4. And then we see that he's successful because of his divine appointment. The service credentials are divine credentials. We see that right at the beginning of this servant song. And then in verses 5 through 9. And then finally the response to the servant's work universal joy, the servant's praise in verses 10 through 12. I want to spend some time on the ministry success of the servant, the servant's work, because it is a work unlike any other that's ever been done, and really apart from the servant, it can't happen. We're told in the second part of verse 1, he will bring forth justice to the nations. Verse 2, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it hurt in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands 
wait for his law. Did you notice that three times the Lord characterizes the servant's work as bringing justice to the earth? Justice refers to all the proper arenas of government, legislative, judicial, executive, everything that an ancient king would accomplish. Isaiah's world was full of brutal tyrants and weak leaders and lawless lawgivers. Godly kings were the exception, and even they could make foolish blunders. No one could bring perfect justice and lasting peace, and that's still true today. King Hezekiah showed extraordinary devotion to the Lord during the days of Isaiah, but he was followed by his notoriously wicked son, Manasseh. And according to historic tradition, King Manasseh executed the aged prophet Isaiah by sawing him in two. It's possible that that's what Hebrews 11 is referring to when it refers to some who suffered by that martyrdom. The problem with human government is not the institution of it. It was ordained by God, but the, the limitations and sins of the human beings carrying it out. We are all sinners by birth and by choice. So just removing governmental structures and leaders won't solve the problem because the plague of sin remains in every human heart. And that's why history careens back and forth between tyranny and anarchy. The reason human government is needed is because humans are by nature rebel sinners that have to be curbed in their evil. There has to be punishment of the wrong and rewarding of the good. But human government is carried out by rebel sinners too. What the earth desperately needs is a leader who is untainted by the sin nature that infects everyone else, and only such a leader can bring about true justice. So there is only one person in all of human history who can actually do that and does do that. The coming servant of the Lord will bring justice to the nations. So not just Israel, the people who had received the oracles of God, but all nations, all ethnicities, God promised to Abraham right at the beginning that, that in his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And this servant of the Lord is going to see to it that it happens. We're told that he will bring forth justice faithfully. In other words, he's utterly reliable, and he, he governs completely in line with truth. Over the years, People have developed a cynicism about those with the power to govern. I mean, it's so bad that, you know, somebody that might even be a good friend you trust until they go into a government position, right? And, and it's come, why the cynicism? Well, it's come through unnumbered rounds of trust and hope placed in those who did not or could not deliver what they promised, no matter how sincere or hardworking, to trust in man is a false hope. But this person will prove completely trustworthy and his words absolutely true. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And he will not stop short of accomplishing his justice goal. No matter what happens, he will fulfill 
his mission. And that sets him apart from every other human attempt to bring justice in the earth. In our own Pledge of Allegiance, what do we say? We talk about justice for all. We're committed to it, but it remains an elusive dream. Justice, that term is very popular today. It's one of the most unjust definitions of justice you can find because it divides everybody into categories according to skin color and ethnicity and uh, sexual orientation and all kinds of other things that they had, um, much of which they had little to choose and some of which they did, but, but tends to victimize them permanently according to their ethnicity victimize them permanently according to uh, what group they're part of. And, and those that are on the other side of the equation, the alleged oppressors, and they don't have to be oppressing anybody, it's just that they have, they have ancestors who perhaps oppressed, there's no redemption for them. And there's no gospel to this system of justice because there is no redemption. There's no way of forgiveness. There's no way to get out of the mess. All it leaves is people warring with one another over the wrongs that have been done or imagined to have been done. And then I've also noticed this. Have you heard about these like personality uh, tests about, um, you know, where your strengths and and how you're wired. Have you noticed that people that supposedly are really big on justice are some of the most unjust people you've ever met? It's like they've got to have it their way, and they can't imagine that there would be another way of looking at it, and, and they're angry at people that don't fit their prescribed version of justice. I think all of this speaks of the reality that as human beings, we long for justice, but somehow we just can't seem to find it even if it's our gifting, even if it's in our creeds, even if we've kind of lined up our whole worldview on justice or the lack thereof, well, this one will establish justice. And he will do so not by stirring up crowds with big talk the way leaders of insurrections do, nor will he bludgeon everyone into submission as strong men and powerful empires have done. His ministry is characterized instead by humble, hopeful gentleness. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. Wounded ones bruised and crushed by life's calamities, will find refuge in Him. Those whose life is burning low, barely surviving, hanging by a thread, will find their strength renewed and their hope assured in Him. Perhaps that describes you today. Crushed, barely hanging on, not sure if you can make it? Well, this servant of the Lord, the Messiah, Jesus, this Savior, is for you. 
What's really clear in his ministry is he understood broken people. He, and, and, and no matter what had broken them, even if it was their own sin that had broken them and the effects of that, he, he knew how to heal them. He knew how to restore them. He was a compassionate Savior. The disciple Matthew quotes from these verses in Isaiah and his record of how the religious leaders conspired to destroy Jesus. What was his crime? He had healed a man with a withered arm in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Never mind that the man had a withered arm. Never mind that Jesus says, stretch forth your hand, and in faith he somehow stretched forth what couldn't be stretched forth, and it was healed. But because their, their rules defined any sort of healing as work, they declared that Jesus had violated the work prohibition on the Sabbath day. He exposed their cold, compassionless hearts, as well as their twisting of Sabbath law into a lawless lack of love that actually hurt people rather than helping them. Matthew 12, Jesus, aware of this, that they were seeking to destroy him, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I'll put my spirit upon him. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles, the ethnicities. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. The first verses are from Isaiah 42, 1 to 4. The last statement from Isaiah eleven ten. The opposition to Jesus rose early in his ministry, but he continued to carry out this compassionate ministry of teaching truth and healing the broken quietly and without fanfare. In other words, even though he withdrew from public acclaim, his work continued of actually restoring people. So we must not mistake his gentle manner for weakness. And strikingly, Isaiah uses the same terms to declare that he will not grow faint as he does to describe the faintly burning wick. And he will not be discouraged, literally bruised, in the sense of being rendered too weak to fulfill his mission. Isaiah's description of the servant's undeterred determination reflects the strong opposition that the servant of the Lord would encounter as the suffering servant of Yahweh, fully developed in Isaiah 53. He will nonetheless succeed as no other has ever done. You can even kill him, and he won't stay dead. Isaiah 53 says it this way, he was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off 
out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Do you see that? Like for him to see that, for him to, to enjoy that, he has to come back from the grave. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. He goes to battle. He's slain in the battle. And yet, he enjoys the spoils of victory in the battle. Because he poured out his soul to death, was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Here is a justice like no other. Perfect righteousness, but redemptive righteousness, full of grace and truth. Think about it for a moment. Who of us could survive perfect justice? Who could survive the scrutiny of a judge who knows every detail of your life, every thought that's ever gone across your brain, every desire of your heart, everything you've ever done or said? Who of us could survive that level of justice? Not one of us. Not one of us unless there is some way for the Lord to make us righteous in His sight. And the way He did that is through the sermon of the Lord who bore the transgressors' sin and makes intercession for them. What a justice. Those that cry for justice, but that have no redemption to their good news, have no redemption to their worldview, how will anyone enjoy the justice? Because we're all guilty before a perfect justice. But here is a judge who dies for his people and pays for their sin to make them right, to make them pure, to make them his, to make them holy, so that they can enjoy a kingdom of perfect justice and not be slain by it. There's no one like this servant of the Lord. And no wonder the coastlands wait for his law, his Torah, his instruction with eager anticipation. All the peoples living along the coast, not just the Mediterranean Sea, but across the oceans, people living in every century, in every part of the world, long for such a leader because there's no continent, there's no nation, there's no people ever in the history of the world that has enjoyed this kind of justice, this kind of perfection this kind of peace. They long for such a leader, strong and gentle, who will bring perfect justice to a twisted, tyrannized world. His righteous kingdom will touch their shores and win their hearts. And only the promised servant of Yahweh will accomplish this, because only He can make atonement for sinners 
so that they stand righteous before God. We fast forward to the future in Revelation 5, and we read, they sang a new song saying, worthy are you, this is a song to the Lamb, to take the scroll and to open its seals, the title deed to the earth, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people. The price of delivering them from the sin and death that had kidnapped them and from Satan himself was his own blood. You ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. This one's going to bring to the earth a justice like it's never known. And, and the reason it's never known is because no one could do this, and he's going to make his people just, right down to the core of who they are. So this leads to some questions as we look at our world now. In, in what ways do we nurture unrealistic expectations regarding human leaders and human institutions? I mean, we want to do what we can to improve our community, improve our state, our nation, our world, but let's, let's get real about how much man-made institutions are actually going to accomplish what we long for. That, by the way, will guard you from your cynicism. It, it will help you not fret so much about who wins an election. How can followers of Christ reflect His perfect justice? compassionate ministry, and humble spirit that does not seek public acclaim. I think sometimes we adopt the world's methods, the chest pounding, the self-promotion, as if somehow if we're stronger, we have more influence, we can make the gospel work better. We would do better to follow the example of our Lord who didn't raise his voice, but work quietly and powerfully, changing one life after another, rescuing them. We would do far better to do that. And how can knowing the justice of Jesus will ultimately prevail keep you from losing heart and giving up in your own ministry to others? Keep plowing the ground. Keep planting the seed. Keep wiping the tears. Keep visiting the sick. Keep doing what you can do to alleviate the pain and the suffering not that you think that somehow you'll make it all go away, but knowing that you serve the one who will. Now, having said all this, how could anyone possibly accomplish this kind of perfect world? How could anyone reach what has proven throughout human history to be an elusive dream? How could anybody do that? Well, that has to do with his divine appointment the servant's credentials. In other words, the kinds of things that are promised here are God-sized things, and so it's going to take a God-sized person to do it. And so the song begins with, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. And then down in verse 5, thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Isaiah underscores that, that what we've seen Jesus repeat over and over again in our study in John's gospel, that he is saying and doing all he does in perfect accord with God the Father. 
He is the only Savior appointed by God Himself to carry out what would otherwise be an impossible mission. Everything the servant does is by the power of God and to God's pleasure. The servant of Yahweh is a high title of great respect and authority. Sometimes we think of servant as like a slave, and that is not at all what's in, in view here. This title, servant of Yahweh, was used of Abram and the other patriarchs. It was used to describe Moses and David and the prophets, and, and even Nebuchadnezzar as he carried out what God had foreordained. A few times, the nation of Israel is also called Yahweh's servant, and yet we know as we look at the history of Israel that it was imperfect service to the Lord. But this passage clearly points to someone greater than any and all of these other servants of Yahweh. God calls all who will hear to take note of this promised servant of the Lord. He starts with the word, behold, like look at him, attention, see him for what he is, don't ignore him. And then he describes that I uphold him, I chose him, my soul delights in him. We're reminded of his words that were audibly heard by those in Christ's ministry, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. His baptism at His transfiguration is, I have put my Spirit upon Him, which taps into the title that Jesus bears, that of Messiah, the Anointed One, or the Greek version of that is the Christ, empowered by God for His saving mission. So, who is talking here when He says, my servant? Who is the I? None other than the creator of the universe. The one who says that he personally stretched out the heavens and hammered out the earth and everything in it. He's the one that put the breath of life into every human being who walks the planet and gave spirit to them to make possible their fellowship with God. He is Yahweh, the covenant God. No fabricated idol imagined or created by human beings can make such a claim. And to the servant, this God says, I am the Lord, verse 6, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. Jesus Christ is the only one God has called for this purpose. There's no other Savior. He has given us Jesus as a covenant for the people. He's the one through whom Yahweh's new covenant of salvation is ratified in blood. Remember how Jesus, when he instituted the Lord's table, said, this cup is the new covenant, the New Testament, and my blood? He is a light to the nations, not just the Jews, all the ethnicities. His light makes the blind see. We've seen that in our study of John, and sets the prisoners of the darkness free, whether it's the darkness of ignorance or death or of disease, the, the darkness of despair the darkness of condemnation from God for our sin. Isaiah 9-2 describes it this way, talking about the region of Galilee where Jesus grew up and ministered. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them 
has light shone. And if you look at verse 1, he's talking about a region that was in the northern ten tribes that suffered what they did. They were in darkness. They were in oppression, oppressing nations because of their sin against God, the, the darkness of idolatry. And so, they're, they're suffering the darkness of the shame of that and, and of captivity. And yet, this one is coming to deliver them from that darkness. Reminds me of the words of Paul where he says to believers in Ephesus, once you were darkness, now you're light in the Lord. In other words, the darkness isn't just around us, it's in us. Who can deliver us from that level of darkness? Isaiah 61.1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of prison to those that are bound. Jesus opened His ministry in His hometown of Nazareth with these very words from Isaiah and declared Himself to be the fulfillment of them. And so, in verses 8 and 9 of our text this morning, God says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. There are things that God predicted early on that came to pass even during the time the Bible was still being written. And new things I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Idols have no power to accomplish anything. They cannot predict the future. They cannot bring it to pass. In fact, human beings don't predict the future well, nor can they bring it to pass. And in fact, the one who predicts the future absolutely has to be able to make it happen. There's only one like that, and that's God himself. Only God can do that. In fact, he makes this argument in a few chapters later in Isaiah 45, assemble yourselves and come Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there's no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. So what do we do with this? Well, God says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. He will bring new things to pass, never before experienced by humanity since the fall of Adam. Such is the coming of Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord. So as you think about that, what does Jesus' unique divine appointment as Savior tell you about any other substitute in which people put their hope? If you leave Jesus out, there is no gospel. If you're depending on some form of therapy or amount of money or some new experience to somehow deliver you, its deliverance will fall far short of the deliverance that Jesus brings. Why does putting full faith in the Creator God who predicts and controls all history make perfect sense? Think about that. I mean, we, we can't predict the future. We can't control the future. We hope for things. We wish for things. But so often it doesn't happen anything like what we hope for. And if it does, we find out what we hope for wasn't enough. But we serve a God who predicts it and fulfills it completely. You can rest in that kind of God. So what are some ways 
that you can bring the light and freedom of Jesus into the lives of people you know. Think about the people you know. Who needs light? Who needs freedom from the prison of darkness they're in? And, and can you, like Isaiah, be a messenger of this servant of the Lord that was given to rescue them? And that leads us to verses 10 through 12, universal joy, the servant's praise. Sing to the Lord a new song, His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabitants. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise in the coastlands. I mean, when your mind taps into the fulfillment of these things, I mean, nothing short of a universal shout of praise matches what God has done. But every fresh experience of God's intervention stirs our hearts to praise Him in song. You know, when you feel like God hasn't done much lately, when you don't see God at work, it's really hard to lift your heart in praise. It's really hard to do that. But when you see God intervene, there is this spontaneous response of a human heart to just exult in that, to revel in that. This new work of God in human history through the worldwide ministry of the servant calls for a new song like no other from every part of the earth. It resounds through the entire earth, those at the sea and everything in it, the inhabitants of the coastlands, along with the people of the desert and the myriad city dwellers, those in the Arabian villages of Kedar, who is a, a son of Ishmael. These are descendants of Ishmael. Those living in the mountain regions of Selah, Edomite descendants of Esau, these all sing and shout for joy. If you think about it, this is a reversal of where they started. This is a reversal of what, what their history has been like. They're going to be those that sing for joy in these regions. Isaiah calls them to give glory to Yahweh, to count him as the weighty, important one that he is, to declare in the coastlands all over the earth, his exultations, exuberant, leaping for joy, praise. This is, by the way, the term that is used for the title of the Psalms. They're not just declaring who God is and what He's done. They're exulting in who God is and what He's done. And what you see here is that our God is a missionary God, that His good news, His gospel is for all ethnicities. And those who realize who the promised servant of Yahweh is, who trust in Him to save them, cannot help but sing for joy. The gospel is good news, news that brings joy. It can't be contained. Our difficulty is believing that it's actually true because it almost seems too good to be true. To receive this news in faith creates desire to share it with everyone everywhere. And so it's no wonder that every New Testament gospel concludes with the Great Commission commands from Jesus. And the book of Acts chronicles what those first 33 years of gospel advance looked like after Jesus gave His last command and ascended into heaven. Many in the world suffer its calamities and cannot find the answer their soul 
longs for. Something feels tragically wrong with life, no matter how good we can make it. They cling to false idols while they starve for what only Yahweh can deliver. They, they identify, as do we, with, with Isaiah's words in Isaiah 41, 28, and 29, right before our passage this morning. But when I look, there is no one. Among these, there's no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. To these people, jaded by false hope, scattered all over the world, we are sent to proclaim the good news of Jesus the Messiah, the great servant of Yahweh, sent to save us from our condemnation, sent to heal us from our sin plague and bind up our brokenness and fill our hearts with a song of exuberant joy. So if you're trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior, what are ways, especially this season of the year, that you, you can regularly express the exuberant joy that the gospel brings? And what things tend to diminish your joy and what God has done for you through Jesus? And since the God you serve is a missionary God, what are some of the places he wants you to go? And to whom would he have you tell the good news? Behold, the servant of Yahweh, keep your eyes on him and fix your heart and hope on him. For he will achieve ministry success. That is his unique work. He is uniquely appointed by God himself. Those are his credentials. And he brings universal joy. He deserves praise. Let's bow for prayer. Oh God, we thank you for your gospel. The gospel that rings from pages of Old Testament and New the gospel that longs for a deliverer and then presents him for us to view in full. God, may we serve faithfully the servant of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, till he fulfills all that is predicted regarding him. We long for the new heaven and the new earth where righteousness dwells. We long for the day when death is forever banished and pain is gone. We long for the community of the faithful, the saints reigning in light where there are no more broken relationships. There are no more goodbyes. There is everlasting joy in the presence of God in perfect communion with him and with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Bring that day speedily, we pray, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.